Hi, my name is Adam. Hi, my name is Bridget. Hi, my name is Johnny. And, and we've, we've never, never seen, seen, seen in, in the, the heat, heat of, of the, of the, the night. night. <laughs> We're getting better, I think. Jesus Christ. That was pretty close, especially considering it's a long title. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not, not like, and Superman. I've never seen Fargo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Fine, I'll Watch It, the show where we show somebody, anybody, sometimes multiple people, a film they've never seen before, but they absolutely should have. As you heard up top, we have a triple hot seat this week, as none of us have seen the 1967 film In the Heat of the Night. I always want to say it like it's a song, because I feel like there's like a million songs that either have that lyric or have that title. But all day as I've been reading it or saying it, I've just like, it, it seems like it should be sing-songy, but I don't think this is the movie <laughs> for that. So yes, none of us have seen this film, so it's a triple hot seat. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what we know, what our expectations are. Uh, I want to start, though, with the reason I think we chose this. We were just looking for a random movie to do, and uh, with the recent passing of the star of this film, Sidney Poitier, figured it'd be a good time as any to tackle this one as it has been on our list for a while and it's a good triple hot seat option uh, so i want to kind of get your guys's take on what you know of his work uh, any particular favorites that you've seen i admittedly will say i have never seen a film of his uh, sadly i think he's always kind of just been a person i knew of because of the trivia question of who was the first uh, african-american actor to win you know uh, an oscar and that's really all I know. So I'll kind of defer to you guys a little bit. And Bridget, I'll start with you. Do you have any kind of familiarity with his filmography? Sure. Not not as much as as I I should or as I would like to. Um, I've seen Raisin in the Sun. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I'm also a big fan of, there's a movie, one of his later films in the 90s called The Jackal, which is... I should put it on the list if you guys haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, I have not. <laughs> it's. I, I think I have. <laughs> yeah, there's... I don't know that the movie is great, but there are things that are happening in it that I would want to see your reaction to in real time. Um, <laughs> but I've never seen this one, and I think this is one of his classic roles. It's not what he wins the Oscar for, by this point in 1967, he had already won for, I think, Lilies in the Field. Yep. Um, I think he wins in 1963. Yep. But I've never seen it. But I feel like I would like it the way that I hear people talk about it. I would probably enjoy it. There is a famous quote from this movie that is frequently put on lists that, if you guys don't know it, I'm not, I won't say it. But that's that's really all I, I know about this movie, for the most part. I believe I know some things about the plot of the movie, some themes that we may be seeing, but that's about it. How about you, Johnny? What's your, your Sydney relationship? I believe he was friends with OJ. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... 
I know he's a very famous actor. Like Adam said, he uh, won the Academy Award for African-American male to do so. I have seen a movie called Blackboard Jungle in college, which he is in, I believe, which the reason why I watched that movie was because the class I was taking was about rock and roll music uh, influencing movies, how they've soundtracked it, what have you. And I remember seeing this one fairly early on in the course because it was one of the very first movies to have rock and roll music in the movie, like in, in a movie. Um, mm. It had, had rock around the clock in it. So I've seen that. I I don't really remember too much about it other than it's like like a social thematically movie with uh, tension and things of that nature during – I'm tr- trying to uh, integrate whites and African-Americans in, the, in a classroom together. But, yeah, I the Jackal, maybe I've seen. I'd have to go through the filmography, but, yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar at all much with it. I'm not familiar with the movie. I like the title of the movie. Like Adam said, it sounds like it's a cool song, like an 80s, <laughs> like, like Top Gun, Tarmac type of song. Um, but yeah, I, I should, maybe should I feel embarrassed? I don't know. I don't really know a lot about this movie. Yeah. So I don't know uh, anything about the movie either, but I am intrigued because uh, like Bridget said, it is, at least seems to be a detective story. So as you know, we like our detective stories here, did a whole month dedicated to it in Noir November. And I always like a good whodunit. So we we should hopefully be in store for some of that. I mean, just some anecdotal things from from this movie. Uh, as Bridget alluded to, there is a quote, which I did see just pulling up uh, the movie's Wikipedia. It's like the first thing at the top. So if you don't want to know it out of context, I guess don't look at that. Uh, but it was listed at number 16 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes. So apparently this is a well-known quote. Looking at it now, I have never heard it ever uh in context or out of i don't think uh, i mean I, do, I don't see this as a thing that i've seen referenced or anything like that so it'll be interesting maybe with his inflection if that triggers some kind of memory for any of us to be like I think oh it, okay i think it might if you hear it in context yeah because there is a really famous reference to it in a movie that i know all three of us have seen probably okay. multiple times okay well, you'll have to let us know what that is in the after yeah. part if we're, if we're yes. still not sure. Yeah. Um, but this film is also on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies list of the 100 greatest movies in American cinema. It has been selected for preservation for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So, I mean, this is, as much as maybe we don't know anything going in, I myself, like I said, haven't even heard of it before now. It's surprising to see that it's on like a bunch of top lists and things that probably should have stuck out to us prior to this, but unfortunately we just uh, missed it. Um, I do also know that there's, it looks like there's some either sequels or sequels uh, that come out of this, as I saw in, in Sydney's IMDb listings, that he's played this character at least twice. Uh, maybe I missed some others, but there's at least a follow-up a few years later. And I think there's like a TV show revival that takes place with the same characters in the same town. So it it's something that has 
some lasting impact in popular culture. So I, I do think it is surprising. Can you guys kind of speak to maybe why you may have missed it? I, I don't have a good excuse. <laughs> I get I don't like I don't know. I feel like sixties cinema is something that I don't have a good grasp on. Mm. Like a little bit earlier, I feel like I've I've hit some of the high water marks and later, same thing, but like nineteen fifty to nineteen seventy feels like a big blank spot for me. Yeah, I think the only thing I associate with the 60s is James Bond. Like, that's it. (laughs) And I haven't seen any of those other than the Goldfinger that we watched. (laughs) Yeah. What about you, Johnny? Had you heard of this before it kind of got... I don't don't even remember which one of us added it to the list, but have you heard of this before either seeing it on a list or, you know, something in your past where you've maybe come across it and been like, oh, I might check that out and then just never got around to it? Um... Just the name itself, The Heat in the Night, it just, like we talked about, either sounds like some sort of piece of media. It sounds like a movie to me. It sounds like a song to me. Yeah, I'm kind of just going through the filmog- his filmography right now, and I just don't know if it's because, like, none of the titles themselves are, like, have got popped into, like, popular culture as much as I think, at least for me, generationally. They just don't sound very familiar to me. Yeah, again, not really a good excuse that I can really think of outside of maybe just the sort of pass down of information from like my parents or other people that, hey, you got to check this one out or what have you. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't know if it's like he won this award that that's what sort of defined his career. And then he sort of just fought to keep his I get. I'm not trying to be presumptuous or anything like that. I'm just trying to wrap my head on why maybe mm-hmm. he didn't maybe have as much fame afterwards, at least for me, with after that win. But I know like a handful of actors have won the award and have struggled to keep their head above water, career-wise, to be as relevant to say something like winning something that big. But yeah, I mean, he's in Death Proof. I've seen Death Proof. I. I the life of me i couldn't peg who he was in that movie but he's in it i guess wait what? um wait really i guess no. he's it says death proof where <laughs> under wait, 50 where? movies in what year uh 2007 uh his For daughter what? is in death proof yeah, what? Uh, maybe they're just wrapping it in. I just have, I don't know. I just have, I don't have like Wikipedia or IMDb. I just have like Google movies related uh, to them open. Maybe it's like archival footage or, because I was like, no, I'm pretty sure. Like his last card on IMDb is from like 2001. Oh, okay. Got it. So, yeah, that might be a uh, like archival footage or a reference or. You know, like they're watching an interview on TV to if if his daughter's in it to allude to like, hey, that's that's my dad kind of thing, like a like an Easter egg. But yeah, I feel like because there's it opens up. They're watching a movie. The first four girls. Right. I don't know. Uh, we're getting it, what, in, death, in death proof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it might be a Sydney Poitier movie. Oh, maybe. Yeah. No, yeah. I listen. I'm, I'm excited to jump into his uh, his filmography and I hope. um it makes me want to watch more of it for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think look, just looking at the list, like the only things that I'd even heard of were Raisin in the Sun I've heard of. And Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? I think I only heard about that movie because of the remake with um, 
Oh, Ashton Kutcher and well, yeah, with Ashton Kutcher Zoe and, Saldana. Yeah, and I forget was it. It wasn't Cedric the Entertainer. It was the other King of Comedy. Uh, Bernie, Bernie Mac, Mac is the dad in that movie, and I just remember like hearing like, oh, it's a remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and so I know like the general idea and the general plot of it, but I never seen it myself. So I, I, I'm like you, Johnny. I'm excited to see him on screen. You know, I don't pretend that I'm this big. Not like I don't have this big knowledge of his work or anything like that. Obviously, he was important as a historical figure uh, in terms of what he was able to do in the acting space. But if this is as good as it seems to be, given it's on a bunch of lists and quotes are on the list and everything, that it hopefully will make me want to check out those other things just to be able to get a glimpse of what you know he was able to do. But beyond that. I'm excited just because it's a it's a crime story. It's you know it's a a whodunit of some sort. So I'm I'm always down for one of those, and hopefully we just get a a good mystery or some good Mister X or you know maybe some of that that noir genre sneaking over into the uh, the late 1960s. But do you guys have any other expectations for this movie for tonight? No, I'm <laughs> open, very open minded, ready for anything. Well, I just saw one thing that excited me. I probably shouldn't read too much into it, but I just got a little more excited. <laughs> um, and we'll discuss it afterwards, but it's, All pretty, right. cool, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. This is probably, I can't remember the last time I went this open or this blank into one of our movies. So I'm excited. Yeah, the good part for us, uh, although it makes for a shorter opening, is that you know, it's nice to go into a movie knowing next to nothing about it other than maybe a quote out of context. Um, so with that being said, uh, what do we have to say for ourselves? Fine. Fine. I'll, I'll watch, watch it. it. In the heat of the night Seems like a cold Creeping across my brow Yeah In the heat of the night I'm feeling motherless Skies all mean and bright. All right, we are back. We have just finished watching 1967's In the Heat of the Night, or should I say, In the Heat of the Night, musically, the way the movie starts. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> How you guys are feeling after watching this movie. So, Johnny, how do you feel after watching this film? It was uh, it was good. Uh, the music is great in this. That's what I loved from the beginning was Quincy Jones. Yeah. Seeing his name got me excited. The movie's a little slow for a long stretch of it, for like the first third half, and then it really started picking up for me and I started vibing with the movie. It's like a love child of Spike Lee, 
early uh, Coen brothers with the sheriff and then a little bit of Quentin Tarantino tossed in. I dug it towards the end of it, but for a long stretch, I was like, ah, it just, it needed like a little more, a better pacing. I'm not sure what it, what it is, but I don't know. I liked it. The acting was good. He was great in it. Um, Yeah, I enjoyed it. What about you, Bridget? How do you feel after watching the film? Good. I did love we spent so much time talking about this movie title should be a song. And immediately, <laughs> <laughs> right. Satisfied. Normally, it's Johnny who says there's no way that this should be said musically. And then it turns out to be the yeah, very first does. thing in the movie. So that was me this time where I was like, I feel like it should be a song, but I don't think a crime drama uh, necessarily has a, a musical title. But boy, was I wrong. Dude, Quincy Jones. So right there, answering that question. Oh my yeah. god. Ray Charles's smooth voice right at the start. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I agree with Johnny that it does it takes a little bit longer than I anticipated to to really get kind of going and burning. I mean I think it's because it doesn't really invest itself in its central mystery until maybe halfway in mm -hmm. the beginning of the movie the the conflict is not you know who killed this random guy but you know when are they going to start showing mr tibbs some respect yeah and then he gets it and it's like all right well now we can get get to business what about you adam i quite liked it i I actually liked the first half to three quarters more than I did the end. I think I really bought in pretty early on on the like the racism conflict of it. I liked the story that it was trying to tell of starting out like a standard. Uh, we got to you know, we're going to arrest the, the black guy sitting at the bus station because that's clearly our number one suspect at this point. And him turning out to be a cop, I thought was a great twist, even though. We knew going in there was a detective story, and it seemed like he would probably Sidney Poitier would probably be the detective in this story. But it was I thought the swerve was handled really well of him like throwing the badge down and being like, "I'm a cop, genius! Like you guys are all awful." Um, and so I kind of really bought into that conflict about showing Mister Tibbs some respect, as you put it, Bridget. And I thought only once it really tried to wrap up the the murder plot in the last half an hour or so is when it kind of just sped up way too quickly and left me feeling a little like the movie, like the, the wrap up wasn't satisfying enough because it felt so rushed. And so I actually liked the beginning part of the movie a lot more because even though the mystery kind of got pushed to the side, I was very much enjoying the, that conflict of basically this one guy in town of any prominence uh, of a different race that everybody just hates and doesn't want to respect. And just little by little, him wearing down the sheriff to where the sheriff was inviting him over for dinner and drinks, essentially. And just kind of like whittling down every single person that he met to the point where they're like, oh, okay, he's actually really smart and really good at this. And everything he says has come true so far. And just kind of him earning little by little the respect of the police and people in the town. Um, so I, I really bought into that aspect of the story and cared a little less for the whodunit part of it, which is, I think, 
the movie's point, given how hastily it wraps up at the end. But overall, I really liked it. Nice, yeah. I like the beginning of it for me, particularly Poitier and like everything else was very like one note. There was nothing dynamic about what was going on, and it wasn't until like the chief started warming up a little bit to him that it started to become like its own. It, it became its own thing with the movie. Um, and seeing all these different things bounce off of uh, Virgil's character. But I think it's it's a movie of moments than it is a movie about like the mystery. Mm. Like I found individual scenes and dialogue exchanges a lot more interesting, compelling, and memorable than the central mystery, which it was kind of like a yawn fest because to be quite honest with you, the mystery itself, like I just I, I was just once I started like digging some of the scenes, I'm like, I just want like a cooler scene. I want like another like that little car chase or like the the guy running across the bridge with the jazzy music like that's that's memorable moments to me in the movie and not like like who's this chick who needs a you know some sort of backstreet uh abortion or whatever you know what i mean it just i knew kind of like where it was going i kind of sniffed out some like shady people i mean everyone's pretty shady in this movie yeah but, yeah um except for virgil he's really the only one who's not a shady character right right yeah, I mean, like, Sidney Poitier's, like, acting didn't really kind of, like, blossom until, like, towards, like, the, the latter half of this movie, arguably. I mean, in the beginning, he's very he'd very much like, oh, you got something to do. I have so like, I, you have a murder that's not solved. I have some time to kill because you just made me miss my train. And it's until he really starts putting a lot of effort into the, the case does it become worth watching, really, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> I actually thought his acting was really good throughout just because I think a lot of a lot of it comes from just he has this stare that every time somebody says something incredibly racist or does something incredibly racist or questions his expertise, he just kind of gives this look. And every single time, I'm like, damn, like he's really putting them in their place with just <laughs> with just a it's look great. and a yeah. stare. And there were several times where he just kind of looks at one of the cops and they're like, Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know he like kind of... looks he like looks through them. Yeah. I think that's part of it. That's you know, we talked about this a lot with Superman last week of these moments where you don't really have to say anything. You can just you know, that one was it was the look of the film and this is the look of the character. Um and I just thought like you convey so much stoic power almost, just kind of staring through them, like you said. And having just everyone kind of change their tone and their tune around like, getting along with this guy who's just like not here for any of their bullshit. No, right. I mean, you can tell he's seen so much of that shit before, but you can tell that he also looks at him like they're living in a different time period because he's coming from the north. They're in the south. They're still mm -hmm. very much in their ways. And the north is uh, way more progressive, at least at that time period. Mm -hmm. than then so it's like dude really you're still talking like that you still treat you know what i mean it's mr tibbs you know what i mean obviously we get that iconic line from that exchange but yeah a lot of really good stares by him for sure i like the scene too where he goes back i think to the character's name is harvey they go back to him for the second time in the jail cell and he's asking about where would a guy go if he got in a girl in trouble Mm -hmm. And you can see him relax, like the character just seems more relaxed, which you've not seen a lot of up to that point. He's been very tense, or at least stoic. 
and like you see him laugh a little bit, like crack a smile, and you can see he is a very talented detective in working down people's uh, the sort of walls that they put up mm-hmm. and use to try to hide themselves or the truth. And like this is someone who's very capable at getting answers, whether it's from a very effective glare or from being like, just tell me what's going on. What's yeah. happening? You want a cheeseburger? You onions? want those onions? <laughs> Dude, now we're talking. Yeah, he's yeah. like, that sounds swell. <laughs> I'll rat on whoever. I don't even give a fuck. I need, I need a burger in this joint. They don't look like they have a good cafeteria at the Sparta police station. <laughs> no. I liked his interactions with that guy a lot, both at the beginning when he first gets locked up, when re- which was really seemed like his plan, so that way he could interrogate this guy. And being like, I'm on your side. I'm a cop. Like, you really think they could have put me anywhere else but here? Like, come on, man. Like, we're here to talk. I'm here to help you out. And even that guy's like, yeah, all right. I believe you. Even though everyone in this town is a super racist, he's still able to, like, get information. And he does that by changing his demeanor and basically matching the person that he needs to speak with, whether it's matching intensity with intensity or matching this kind of like aw shucks guy with an aw shucks attitude like you see in both interrogations. How did you guys feel about the Gillespie, the the sort of sheriff character, chief of police? How did you guys feel about that performance? By by the end, it for me that was the best character in the movie. <laughs> Just because he had he had the best arc in the movie, he had like the best moments from going to like being on the other sideline to like being on his side about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, great performance. I don't think I've ever seen that guy in a role. Rod Steiger, Steiger. Mm-hmm. I'm probably mm-hmm. butchering it. Whatever. Yeah, really enjoyed that performance. Loved his glasses that he was wearing throughout. <laughs> Oh, the yellow yeah. sunglasses. sunglasses, yeah. The Janis Joplin glasses he was rocking throughout. <laughs> yeah, really good performance. I mean, again, going in, I was like, okay, this is obviously going to be Cindy Poitier's show, and for large stretches, it is. But there's an argument at the end of the movie, like who is like the more compelling, interesting character in the movie, or the better acting. I, it's it's a toss up, but I think just because of how much change the character went through over the course of an hour and 40 minutes, 50 minutes, I would say I I enjoyed the chief more than I did Virgil. I just think it's interesting because in my mind, I was like, how how did Portier not get the Oscar for this role? But Rod is the one who ends up winning it this year for the Oscars. He takes home uh, best actor. Oh, he does. Mm -hmm. Oh, not even supporting best actor. No, no. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Because he is like, you know, I, I would I'd be interested to see how much screen time both had, but he definitely seemed like the minor character, even though he is in a lot of it. He I feel like he has more scenes by himself, whereas a lot of uh, Virgil scenes also have the chief in them. But it he does seem like the more supporting character rather than the main character. Yeah, right. and it could be because uh, Portier had big 67 was a big year for him it's this to sir with love guess who's coming to dinner all come out in 1967 and so 
there's some who theorize that because he had so many big roles in these big movies that the ballot was split. Mm. And so instead of being like, you've got one great standout performance of the year, you've got three of them. We don't know what to vote for. Yeah. Okay. Not that I don't think Rod Steiger's performance isn't fantastic, but it's just interesting to think about. Yeah. No, I do agree with your point, Johnny, though, that he is probably the best character in the movie because he has such a fulfilling arc, whereas Virgil is the same character at the beginning as he is at the end. There's a little bit of growth when he realizes that he shouldn't be going after uh, Endicott just because he's this horrible, horrible person True. <laughs> uh, morally that, you know, he's like, OK, just because he's just an absolute son of a bitch doesn't mean he's the killer or he orchestrated the killing or, you know, hired a hitman or anything like that. So, like, there's some growth there, but it's it's basically the same character at the beginning and the end, whereas uh, the chief is very much a growth thing. And it reminds me a lot, both kind of in the relationship between the two, of uh, Remember the Titans, like where Virgil feels like Denzel's coach character and then the chief feels like the established uh, white coach on that team who is a big racist and has to come around and learn and realize that, like, just because he's different from me doesn't make him smarter at this or just as smart or what have you. And both kind of come around in the same kind of way. Um, so it reminded me a lot of that, but you're right. He does have a more complete arc and it is super satisfying when he comes to the, you know, comes to terms with everything and be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to need his help. He knows what's going on. He's asking the right questions. I don't give a shit if he doesn't fit in in this town, but like, I'm going to make sure nothing bad happens to him. And even in the latter half, he's he's trying to get him to leave, not because he doesn't want his help still, because I think he does. It's just he doesn't want him to get killed, and he's absolutely going to get killed from any number of these mobs. Right. And obviously he he lends the, the comedic tone in this movie as well, where if mm-hmm. you didn't have him, there's not really any comedy to be found for the most part. I mean, you know, Tibbs has some quips here and there, but beyond that, I mean, it's very falls on the shoulders of the chief to really slice the tension and the uh, the heavy themes of this movie with some uh, some levity. I love his constant berating of the the two clerk brothers who refuse to oil the, <laughs> the air conditioner <laughs> or right. fix the gate. We're like, it's whatever. They're at the diner at the end and it's, you know, 2 a.m., and he gets on the radio and he's like, didn't I tell you to fix that gate? <laughs> didn't I tell you to do this? He's like, oh, no, sir. That, yeah, that was my brother. It's like, no, it wasn't. I talked to him. It's like, you're in the middle of the final stages of this murder investigation of the biggest man to come into this town in years. And you're berating the underlings for not fixing up the station. Right. It was kind of fun. Yeah, I thought at the end, I was like, this story would have been a really good season of Fargo. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I think it would be at home, like a different setting. Well, Fargo, it has to be sort of cold or whatever. I haven't seen later seasons where maybe they shift <laughs> settings, but um, there's a lot of that sort of dark black humor going on here that's at home at far- with Fargo and just Coen Brothers sort of writing in general. Yeah, is there a Fargo, Mississippi? There <laughs> <laughs> <No>, should. <laughs> yeah, I I enjoyed it. I don't know. I, and you can see the DNA of a lot of stuff that comes after this in this movie, um, which I think is interesting. 
it also had what felt like a very modern feel for the time. Like it felt like a movie that would come out in the eighties for some reason. I don't know. Just like maybe like the Quincy Jones score and I don't know. Right. Like I said, let's get that Spike Jones jazzy feel going for it. Let's say Spike yeah. Jones, Spike Lee. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> wrong Spike. Um, yeah, wrong Spike. But yeah, like Mississippi Burning owes a lot to this movie. Oh, um, yeah. But I will say the one thing that, and again, it does make this movie a little more light, is that the villains or sort of like, say, the people that are chasing Tibbs around with, the, you know, the, the flag on the front and all that stuff, it's cartoonish a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than it is uh, really trying to vilify these people. It's like, we already know they're, like, disgustful, so let's just have fun with it. You know what I mean? Opposed yeah. to, like, a Mississippi burning war, it's like, these guys are chasing them down, and it's, like, super tense. I don't know if it's on our list or whatever, but a little more closer to, like, more serious movies that come later on that approaches material than, say something that's maybe a little more approachable back then or or digestible for a wide audience, I guess, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it is. That did stick out to me of the menace in the film does not meet the levels of the menace of, you know, what the reality. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like to the point, like, I don't know if you guys could kind of tell, like it looks very cold you know, because they didn't they didn't shoot in Mississippi. They shot in Illinois. Yeah. Uh, in, Sparta, Illinois, actually. Sparta, Illinois. Yep. Yeah. Uh, partly because Sidney Poitier was very apprehensive, along with Norman Jewison, the director, about filming in the South. They did a little bit of shooting in Tennessee for the scenes, like at Endicott's, like cotton plantation, essentially. But other than that. You know, he was like, I don't want to go down to film. I I don't feel safe doing yeah. that, you know. I mean, it makes sense. I think this is kind of like what we talked about um, with Casablanca a few weeks ago of like, this is set in the time period where this stuff is still going on. So like mm-hmm. where the Nazis felt extra cartoonish and less like actual evil villains, these guys kind of do too. I mean, they're clearly out to murder like a black man just for existing in their town, which is evil in itself. But they do kind of like, they almost kind of feel like the, uh, the bully in my cousin Vinny who keeps trying to like make the bet with Joe Pesci and ends up getting punched. Like just that, like yuck kind of aw shucks Southern type person rather than like the angry evil type of yeah. Southern people that would have existed and would have hunted down a Virgil in their town in 1967 like mississippi at this point is still not integrated so like yeah this is one of those things where i think it it is just you can't really show it as bad as it was because no one wants to watch that because they're really living it right whereas something made now could show the real horrors of the time right yeah Yeah. i mean it was it was kind of like the bullies and like back to the future the kind of way they sort of Mm -hmm. portrayed them and again it's 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 the setting, it's the time period, but maybe just because I've seen 
other films portray this a little more elegantly and a little more ambiguously, but like the sort of having the Confederate flags on things and just it, there's some heavy handed imagery going on where it's like, okay, I know they're bad people and they're maybe don't need the Confederate flag. That's probably what was on the front of these people's cars in real mm-hmm. life back then. Sure thing. But to like instantly label someone like a, a like a villain and not give them the time to show that they are. I don't know. It just there was just a couple of things here and there. It's not there's certainly not a movie killer for me or anything like that, but just some heavy handed stuff where I was like they could have played it a little more softly, I think. Yeah. I was thinking about the Confederate flag license plates when it showed up because it was like it's interesting that they're using it as shorthand at this point. And then I was like, when did Dukes of Hazard come out? Like when does the General Lee become seventies? Yeah, seventy nine. I think is what I found. But like from 67, you have it as, you know, this is a clear cut example. Like we know what these people's intentions are to now that as a symbol has become, I think in some ways muddier for people, which I think is interesting. Like, well, it's, it actually stands for, for freedom. All right. (laughs) Sure. That flag has had quite a ride over the last hundred years. <laughs> Goddamn sure. Christ. Well, yeah, I um, was thinking about that too, Bridget. Like, that's interesting because it did it did go to being more accepted as like something. Oh yeah. You, like you would it's wear like a t-shirt. Sanitized or, and fun. Correct. Put it yeah. On a bikini top. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. so you know, just interesting the way. The yeah. things we'll come to accept, and it's it's an error in history. <laughs> yeah, are you guys familiar with the Belafonte Portier story? No, no. So this happens a few years earlier, but I think it just is sort of interesting to think about within the context of this film story. So both Portier and Harry Belafonte were big supporters of the civil rights movement. Uh, were friendly with Martin Luther King Jr. So in 1964, this is coming from a CNN article, Belafonte had kind of developed these relationships with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who are like big organizers uh, in the South. And he asked Poitier to accompany him to Mississippi to deliver cash during the Freedom Summer. So, like, just bring cash to these activists. And it was $70,000 in cash, which is already astounding. Mm-hmm. Like, just to be like, yeah, look, like, I'll take that, sure. And they had to kind of go secretly, disguise themselves. They They hid the cash in doctor's bags. And on the way to the airport, they end up getting in a car chase with either like outright clans members or clans members who were pretending to be the cops or cops that also happened to be clans <laughs> members all are g- possible and they were shot at they had to drive off and they ended up you know losing them and like being able to deliver the money but it's at that point that Poitier was like I will never go back down like below the Mason Dixon line ever again that was enough for me. Wow. Yeah, that'd be enough for me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not wrong. Yeah. But this movie comes out sort of at the this tail end of kind of what we consider the 
the civil rights movement of the 60s, if you sort of think of Brown versus Board of Ed in 1954 as the opener, then you get um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 65, you have Loving versus Virginia in 1967, which uh, strikes down laws that would have outlawed interracial marriage, and then the Fair Housing Act comes out in 1968. It's the same year we have the assassination of King. So it's, I think, interesting to look at this movie as maybe in some ways like a bit of like a, I don't know, just trying to come to terms with all the kind of changes that had occurred in the previous decade. And it's, I think, for those who would have been very much for the civil rights movement. It's like, oh, fuck yeah, great, I love it. And I think, too, for people who would have seen it and been, let's say, apprehensive about changes, this is a way to kind of imagine possibilities. Right. It's like the movie is a little trepidatious as far as what sort of course correction we should do with history. Like, where mm -hmm. should we go? Who should yep. we appease? Mm -hmm. um, who is our market or do we not give a shit? Should we just tell the story that's true and yeah. not have it sort of lend itself to be favored by any particular group? But no, you're right. It is sort of sitting on the dawn of a different time or change as far as everyone sort of it's like pick a side, really. <laughs> yeah. Like this, this is getting old, like pick a side. Yeah, but I do think it's interesting because any change that would have happened at the time would have been more reflected in probably bigger cities where something as rural as this Sparta, Mississippi would have been a lot slower to act and a lot slower to change. You know, you could have even set this movie in the seventies and it probably would have still been the same kind of townspeople, same kind of attitudes, but it is interesting to see a movie made at this time set in this time, telling this kind of story, just because I think from our perspective, we're so much more used to seeing things in, the 90s and 2000s and now that are telling these kinds of stories from the 50s and 60s but to see it told at the time just seems it's, it hits different right no and that's why it's genius that he is from like a northern part of the country more progressive part of the country where you have mm -hmm. you get to see that contrast and mentality with again like i was saying before you're still thinking like that like mm -hmm. those like death stares that he gives them it's like dude catch up like but yeah like i said i love the reveal of i'm a cop like oh what do you do up there and you know what do you what do you do that makes you a hundred and sixty two dollars and 39 cents like what is it because nobody down here that looks like you makes that kind of money yeah that and then when he was like i'm a cop and takes the you know the badge out of his jacket which of course the bumbling local idiot cop didn't search the jacket he just patted down the man right uh, and just like throwing it on the thing. And when he's constantly taking it out and showing people, I'm like, yeah, dude, flash that thing as much as possible and put all these people in their place. <laughs> um, I did look it up though, just in case anybody was wondering, uh, the amount that he gets paid per week as a Philadelphia cop is $162 and 39 cents. Uh, the chief screams it at him over and over and over again, uh, which equates to $1,355 and 53 cents in 2021 money. So. Okay. All right. Sounds, sounds Decent like amount. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like thirty-three bucks an hour or something like that. Uh, when you break it down over a uh, 
40 hour week though obviously cops probably put in a bit more than that but yeah i think know. he said like 70 like i was working on 70 hours this week or like 10 hours a day yeah seven days a week so not too bad but not you know not super great either <laughs> yeah there's so many d- details in this movie that i love as far as just like like the props department like that sign in the train station that says no loafing in this room i need that <laughs> that's so awesome it's so good the radio hanging from the rear view mirror so good i need that um <laughs> yeah we have modern bluetooth and satellite radio and everything but like no i want a battery operated little tiny square radio that <sighs> i basically can just turn the volume on and it gets the one station in town. just the one yeah, it just it's it's great. And I just love like the like the beat ass like recliner leather chair that's in mm-hmm. the office. Like what? Awesome. God. And I love how that one girl and she does shine in that one like scene that she's in uh in the chair. What's her name? Del- Dolores, Dolores Curry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She fell right out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. Like oh, her yeah. dialogue and the way she looks and her like her cadence and everything. And I think she was like touching herself. Like she kept rubbing her like hand up and down her like le- upper leg. And I was like, is she, what is she doing? <laughs> her brother's right there. I know. I thought he was her husband. Yeah, I, did. I thought it was a boyfriend or a husband or something. And it was, no, she was adulterous and slept with the cop. Right. Ooh. Yeah, that, it, was, it, that was definitely a Tarantino-esque scene for sure. Oh, for sure. And that is is that her drinking soda topless in the beginning of the movie too? Yes. Yeah. Good stuff. That's how she gets her <laughs> kicks. <laughs> yeah, like the the greenhouse is a great scene that I I really enjoyed. That's I think one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing, just because the interaction he baits him right into giving him the information he wants. Right. I just like how in the beginning they both know they hate each other. Like it's already established when they see each other, but they're having such a civil mm-hmm. conversation. And then it just ends with like a couple of slaps. And I love that he slapped him back. That was so satisfying to see. Oh, dude. 48 th- like advocated. He said, if I get slapped, I'm slapping him back. And any cut you do of this movie, the, that my slap stays in. Because a right. lot of studios would cut for southern audiences like they would so if this movie was being shown in mississippi or alabama you know they would cut things that would have been provocative for white audiences who's explicit like it stays in there's going to be no way you can cut around it my the look on my face was just as shocked i think of the look on their faces because i did not expect him to retaliate with such conviction because it wasn't even that he slapped him back. Like, it wasn't, you know, oh, he thought about it and he took the time. It was just like, no, you hit me, boom, I'm popping you right back. Like, not right. even a thought. I don't even care that there's a yeah. cop right there. And I loved how they told him later, like, the last guy we would have had would have shot you dead and claimed self-defense right there. So, like, you're lucky this dude is warming up to you because you would not have been able to get away with that. But, yeah, I know I love that slap. It was so good and so satisfying, especially seeing, like, he's a plantation owner He's got the workers out there, and he's got that awful fucking statue right outside his house, which oh the chief God. touches just to indicate that, like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a racist too, almost like a I've been here before, you know, pat you on the head kind of thing. And I was just like, oh man, I 
this dude needs to get his. <laughs> yeah, I know. When I saw it too, and again, I'm not sure if this came before or after, like the plates or anything like that. But I was like, it just so, it's horrible. Again, probably adorned someone's front yard for years or decades. Oh, for sure. But like pretty heavy hand industry, we're rolling up on a cotton plantation at that time period. I know what's about to unfold. I don't need yeah. like, hey, just in case you didn't know, there's something wicked behind this door. Like I know it. <laughs> I fucking know it. See, that's the thing. Um, like, it seems like it's overkill in a set dressing. But I have no doubt that that's actually oh, it, probably it, it, just and, at that house, and they didn't even have to set dress it. It probably just looks like that year round. Right. So I can't completely fault the movie or the props department or the director, whoever, to, 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 to put that in. But at the same time, I do like a little more gradual reveal <laughs> in people's uh, behavior, but um, it's whatever. I am disappointed that Poitiers or Virgil did not take a sip of that lemonade before leaving. Made the guy go get it. It was probably really good. It, dude, it was Southern cold lemonade. and soft. I yeah. think was the description. Yeah, give me something cold and soft. And soft. Southern lemonade, something else, man. I gotta tell you. Uh, so, yeah, he really missed out. But he was angry and he stormed off, and I get it. Right, but it would have been such a badass. Like if he just grabbed the glass off the plate and just walked out, like <laughs> that would have been such a badass move. But. Just like flipped him a quarter for the glass, but like something, I'm this. yeah, something. <laughs> this, is, this is my glass now. Um. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was done with the lemonade. <laughs> oh, you shoot! That was just a last satisfied, like. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 going down smooth right now. Before we move on from that scene, though, I just want to reiterate how satisfying it was to see Endicott standing there with his hand on his face, and he looked like he was about to cry, if not actively crying, that he just got slapped in the face when he's been by slapping people left and right his whole life and never once had it happen back to him. And yeah. just that look of sheer, like, mom, he hit me kind of look on his face was just yeah. defeated. Just, yeah. So another little anecdote, uh, Rod Steiger and Sidney Pollack during the film's initial run would go and see it in the theaters in New York on occasion. And they sort of played this game to try to figure out, you know, is this showing a primarily black audience or a primarily white audience? And they said they could always tell when they got to that scene because in a black audience, everyone would cheer. <laughs> and in a white audience, they go, <gasps> like, <laughs> that's great. Right. Oh, uh, I did you both. Like to be, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe I was seeing it, but also was really glad I was seeing it. Yeah. Thrilled. Thrilled. It's great, yeah. Again, like I said, a, it's a movie of moments and scenes that I really enjoyed more so than I think like the whole story. You know what I mean? It just kind of it just it it progressed the movie, but it was like those scenes that are at its best for sure. Yeah. Now you touched on this briefly, Johnny, because you mentioned the uh, the quoted line, which uh, I was not familiar with, and I got to say, even seeing it in context, it still rang no bells for me. But it was. What do they call you up there? Like they call me Mr. Tibbs, which was delivered impeccably. The force of it, the like, again, no bullshit demeanor of like, I'm not playing your game. Not, I'm not doing any of this. This is what they call me because they dress me like a person, you fucking idiot. But Bridget, you mentioned there was a famous like recreation or homage to it in the beginning part. So I just wanted to circle back to that. And I, 
See, I don't know if it'll be famous, but it sticks out in my mind. Okay. <laughs> Stick with me. <laughs> uh, just stay with me. Oh, you've I'm lost me sound already. Crazy. Um, in the Lion King. <laughs> okay. Near the end, Simba has returned to Pride Rock. Shit is turned every which way but loose. That means there's monkeys running amok. <laughs> yeah, Rafiki's there, fucking shit up. And Timon and Pumbaa are there as well. And Timon is hiding with Zazu in a cave. And the hyenas are about to eat them. And Pumbaa shows up and confronts the hyenas. And they're like, who the hell are you? And Pumbaa's all pissed. And he says, they call me Mr. Pig. In a very dramatic way. And I remember, like, as a child being like, what? is this and i feel like my father told me like it's from a movie you'll see eventually oh yeah and now i have yeah wow okay that's great deep yeah. cut that's not a what very I deep cut yes that's this deep, is why yeah. i just say stick with me and you nailed all the character names too <laughs> i've seen the movie a lot yeah Came i saw a vibe but it's, it's prime it's time been, it's been some time it's been yeah. a while when you had said that earlier, I was thinking more of a spoof type movie or a Simpsons or a something no. that's referential in nature. Typically, was not expecting a Lion King reference. <laughs> no, it's 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 a weird place to reference a movie like in the heat of the night. Yeah, you know, having seen the movie now, it seems even more like off the wall. Anyways, thank you for taking allowing me to take us down the rabbit hole. No, I liked it. It's great. Loved it. Did now did that seeing it in context, did that ring any bells for you guys? Johnny, were you familiar with the line going in? Or coming out of it, I guess? Yeah, coming out of it, yeah. It 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 was vaguely familiar. But yeah, that was just the one thing that you I think one of you guys or Bridget, you said it that there was a big line going into it that we would know. Yeah. But there's a handful of other ones, and I didn't really write them down. I was just like, oh, that's a great line that I was like, oh, maybe that's the one she's talking about. But I think after leaving, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was the Mr. Tibbs one that she was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm just – I'm pretty sure it was Mr. Tibbs. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was Mr. Tibbs. (laughs) Uh, One line that I did like um, also from Virgil when he's talking to the chief is when – I think it's the the wife is like he needs to stay on the case. You need to do whatever it takes to like let him solve this because he's the only one who's not an inept dumbass. And he goes to the station and he's like, "Now, what would you say if I asked you to stay on it?" He's like, "I'd say no." <laughs> Absolute <laughs> deadpan, like motherfucker, get out of my face! I'm tired of your bullshit. I say no <laughs> unless you can give me another reason. And then that speech that he then gets back of like you're you're smarter you're smart enough to know what's going on you're smart enough to know that if you walk away from this like you're gonna regret it you're not the type to not see this through the end because you've got a hunch and you've got a feeling and it's gonna eat away at you if you don't help me and he's like all right fine i'll get my bag get in the car you racist piece of shit (laughs) (laughs) there's another really good slap in this movie or slaps i should say it's a double one yeah, but it is a throat slap too. If you if you if you looked at it, I didn't pause it, but it looked like a throat slap, which you don't get many of those. But it was satisfying because the chief did it. Yeah, and you're talking those, the yeah. Uh, it was two one of those the, animals driving the cars. Yeah, yeah. The uh, which was a great standoff. I loved when uh, 
Virgil picks up the big pipe and uses it kind of like a bow staff. And, you know, you got the one guy just picking up the chains and just rattling them. Like, <laughs> he's going to use them as nunchucks. I'm like, okay, dude, you. it's it's intimidating. I get it. But I think it's intimidating because there's four of you, not because you're going, I got chains. I'm going to rattle them. I'll rattle them right in your face. <laughs> I know. It was a bit comical. You would have thought like a Ninja Turtle about to pop out any minute yeah. or something to kick their ass. But Vanilla Ice they... is going to sing the Ninja rap and they're going <laughs> to start flipping them around. Dude. Yeah, it's like Fox Force 5. Each of them has their own specialty. Correct. Like, I, I'm the pipe, knife one. I'm the chains stick. one. Yeah. yeah. I'm the pipe one. <laughs> Virgil was holding his own when he had like a staff like Donatello. I'm sorry going back to fucking Ninja Turtles, but like... <laughs> no, I mean, that's... That's yeah. exactly how it would have worked. But yeah, he was uh, showing some moves there. Yeah, which Ninja Turtle has the shovel? I don't remember. <laughs> Great. Oh, yeah, the shovel one when the chief shows up and he just slowly drags the shovel like on the yeah. floor. Oh, that's good. Very disrespectful. Yeah, I was I was sitting there on the couch going, "Swing, damn it, hit him!" Like to Virgil, not the shovel yeah. guy. Oh. <laughs> just being like Virgil, hit him. Just start swinging for the fences. You got a great you got a great hand overhand batter's grip. Just start swinging away because I want to see these guys get hit with a metal pipe. Speaking oh, wow. more of uh, athleticism in this movie, when when Dolores runs out of that fucking diner and, and Tibbs runs after her and gets her so quickly, she doesn't even have a fucking chance leaving that place. Oh, it's because he slides down the ramp. Well, okay, that was Mama sick. Beverly's, which was just a like it was almost like a T.J. Hooker sliding across the hood of a oh sedan type cop move, but just him in his like slick city you know dress shoes sliding down that little wood ramp up to the uh mama beverly's place great i was like dude get her <laughs> i know I thought, I thought i was about to hear like a like a looney tune skidding folly like happen like where he slides down the ramp but yeah she had no chance about running that dude no well she's pregnant she's running for two <laughs> she is i did like mama beverly's oh yeah. i like the scene of her and him like, oh right. Uh, I wanted more of that. Well, because it's and the one the character ended. that they like. It's the one conversation he has in that whole town with someone who understands him. Because everybody else is dismissive right from the get go. Nobody wants to talk to him. Nobody wants to interact with him. Nobody wants to hear what he has to say. And she's just like, "I would never let you leave here that quickly. You absolute man." <laughs> <laughs> You absolute man. Like, I forget what she says, something like that, where she's like, I would never let a man like you walk out of my life. Or like something to that effect, basically being like, you're a handsome gentleman. You stay right here. Like, what do you need? You need a Coke? You need a Pepsi? You need a the squirt? What do you need? I got it all. <laughs> but yeah, that, that whole scene was great. And it has one of my favorite shots. And in in, I want to touch on, on these two, because there's a lot of great shots in this movie. But there's a close-up of him and you just have the this light bulb dangling and kind of swinging just in the corner of the frame. And he's just like, tell me the name. Tell me what happened. Like, who is this man who's paying this money because he's a murderer and I need the information. And it's just it's oh, almost yeah. like an interrogation scene, but where you'd like normally just see like the one lone light bulb in the room. But just the way it was framed was just like so nice and it really drove home the intensity of the moment because he's so close to getting the answer and solving this mystery that up until 45 minutes ago wasn't really that important. Right. 
no, yeah, that looked really great. I always love like a lone light bulb with no shade, just swinging and people yelling underneath it. It's always good mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> There's a really good shot. My favorite shot. It's it's. I like it because it was so well done. The focus pull of it, but when he pulls that shit off of the the um the pedal, and he kind of points, he kind of hangs it up. He puts it up in front of his face, and like the the camera focuses from the stuff that's in his hand to his face. It's just so well done. And like all of a sudden, like Quincy Jones music like snaps in. It's like mm-hmm. that might have been where like the movie kind of pulled me in. It's like, all right, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. My note for that says twig vision. I did. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I did yeah. Quite, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did quite enjoy that. I didn't uh, even know what he pulled off the pedal at the time, but I was like progress. This guy's yeah. this guy. <laughs> this yeah. guy's moving the case along. Yeah. You know what he found? Evidence. Evidence. <laughs> Yeah, a couple other ones. I really love when there's a really great wide shot of the cop car at the beginning when he's about to find the dead body. Where, like, it's low grill height, basically the whole width of this, like, big boat of a old cop car is taking up almost the entirety of the frame. And it's just all you're seeing is the headlights coming in because it's this low shot. And then it cuts to around the back when the cop is getting out of the car. And it does this, like, weird zoom dolly move forward into the brake light yeah and just like as the brake lights lighting up and the cop getting out of the car is not in focus and then the focus shifts to it like those shots right there and i was like all right cool i'm i'm on board with this like this is shot so well and we're five ten minutes into the movie it's great stuff yeah there's some great like modern techniques that are going on here and you start seeing that a lot in the like the 50s and 60s and we even saw some of that shit in Casablanca with some some crazy dolly moves, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, some really interesting shots in this. I love how much emphasis they put on the retractable uh, convertible top of the car. Mm-hmm. It was like the switch, and we saw the entire thing happen on like uncut. And I don't know, it's great. I don't know why. I just thought they put they spent spent more time than they needed to on that thing opening up, but I loved it. Yeah, it was cool. I also loved the the switch to first person when the uh, the runaway was running through the woods. I really liked that whole chase sequence a lot. Just the different uh, the different stuff he was running through. Like he's running through water. He's running on like the sloped sand. He's climbing up the bridge. Like I like that whole sequence. But when it was switching to first person, and at one point I think he falls down in first person, and then like it cuts to the other side of the log that he fell behind, and like he gets up and hops it and keeps running. Uh, that was another good particularly good well shot sequence yeah yeah like i said i think i said earlier but i like that bridge scene a lot like he's gonna be in arkansas soon or something it's like mm-hmm. something gotta like no brother out thou or whatever it just and then like the chief is slowly it's on the bridge he's like i see him it's like <laughs> yeah i got it <laughs> i got it the satisfied look on the chief's face when they bring him in and all they have is like this empty wallet being like we got him get out of here virgil we don't need you you're done back to the bus station this is the guy. It's like, no, it right. isn't. No, it's not. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> we got this other guy. He did it. No, no you didn't. That's no, not him. No, you didn't. <laughs> I love the uh, the almost like superhuman detective skills at the beginning where it's like, all right, I'm going to grab his arm and be like, he's a lefty. Cool. Got it. Nailed it. And everyone's like, he is a lefty. Damn. And then when he does basically the autopsy of like, he's touching the legs and he's touching the, you know, the arms of the deceased and he tells the, medical examiner would be like touch the chin is rigor mortis set in yeah yeah it was definitely earlier i could tell exactly when this man died 
not only am I best, the best homicide guy, I'm also basically a coroner medical examiner too. I have all the skills up there in Philly. Don't <laughs> do not test me. Yeah, it seems like the beginning was a little more relied on like guessing than there was like full on evidence, which I think that's where I sort of picked up from me too. Yeah, I mean he's doing the police work, and but no, he is. Yeah, the guessing is based on informed hunches more so than just like throwing darts at the wall and seeing right he's just doing like a process of elimination crossing his t's down his eyes sort of situation but yeah because like a lefty could have easily swung with his right hand and you know just because of the circumstances like that's not that's circumstantial at best same thing with the wallet so like you know it could have been that guy but he, he stuck to his guns and he he had reason to back it up which which worked out pretty well so what do you guys think? More Sidney Poitier movies in your future? Yeah, I oh, think yeah. so. I would probably check out um, Look Who's Coming to Dinner and probably the one he won the Oscar for as well, The the Lilies of the Field as well, just to see you know what, what his award-winning work was. Um, but just because I'm familiar enough with the story of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, I would probably, probably give that one a look too, just because I, I want to see more of those stares, more of those I'm not putting up with your bullshit stare downs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to see more of him, and I want to see more of Rod Steger as well. Yeah, we should put. Um, when I came home and told Brian what we were doing, he was like, "You're doing Sidney Poitier, and you're not doing the Defiant ones." So we'll have to throw that one in as well. Oh yeah, I don't know what that one is. <sighs> I don't know. Brian was so informed. Every once in a while, I guess he's seen. He's been able to sit for a movie. <laughs> Okay. A whole 90 minutes. Yeah. You must be a big Tony Curtis fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to – I mean, I'll do, I'll do some work. I don't think I'll throw a dart at a board per se, but I think I'll kind of just see what have been the more – like what's second in line as far as what is considered his best or his third or whatever. Yeah. Um, not to say that he, he create, made any duds or anything like that, but, you know, I certainly don't want to go on a goose chase looking for the, the best stuff. But, yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed his performance here. Like I said, I enjoyed Rod Steger's performance. I even chased down some of the director stuff too because I enjoyed a lot of the the stuff that happened in it, the shots. Again, I think there's some pacing stuff in the the beginning. I mean, that could just be me just kind of catching my interest when it finally hooked me. But um, yeah, I enjoyed it. And again, I I really enjoy movies where I'm like, oh man, that's like where such and such maybe got inspiration or whatever. Because until then, they were like in my mind maybe the pioneers of such tone or technique or whatever in their filmmaking but like i said earlier there seems to be a lot of uh inspiration as far as like you know like the coen brothers tarantino other crime procedurals with like that sort of black humor dark humor uh woven into it Mm -hmm. we didn't touch on the director at all in the beginning but he did uh, he's got a long list of uh of good stuff he directed the hurricane the denzel washington hurricane carter movie uh, Moonstruck, Jesus Christ Superstar. Movie. You said Moonstruck's a perfect movie? Yes, it is. Okay. I've never seen it, so we'll have to add to the oh, list. It's not on the list. Put it on the list. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have not seen that. Yeah, oh, my so, God. Yeah, so that'll be a double hot seat for us, Johnny. Yeah. But yeah, Moonstruck is there. Like I said, he directed The Hurricane, Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, the original Thomas Crown Affair. So... A lot of oh, things and the, on here. And the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming is great too. If you guys haven't seen that, no, I that's have another. Not. <laughs> that's I have not. good stuff. That's, so that's good yeah. stuff. 
that's right before this one. Oh, Carl Reiner. Okay. Yeah, and there's a ton. Of, that's like one of those movies where it's like famously has just like a ton of people in it. Okay. Oh yeah, Alan Arkin, Jonathan Winters. Okay. So good. So yeah, we we've got some good stuff coming out of there. Uh, Rod Steiger just looking at his IMDb, and I don't know how prevalent he is in this, but one of the things that I do recognize as far as the movies he's in on the waterfront which i know is a, a gotcha. classic film but i don't know how much he is or is not a part of that so i would i would hesitate to say like oh definitely go watch it if you like him because i don't i don't actually know but yeah there's a uh he's got a lot of stuff that he's into especially some newer things where he's got some bit roles it looks like but yeah i mean all of the the top talent here i thought was really good and would definitely be uh open to checking out more of of each of their filmographies, because this this definitely won me over. Um, so any final thoughts from you guys? Anything you want to put a bow on this, on your experience with watching uh, In the Heat of the Night? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, again, like I said, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I may frame this one note that I have, which is just says greenhouse slap. I think I'm going <laughs> to cut that out and put it on my fridge. I just love the combination of words. And the context yeah, just, behind it is just great. You need to get like the the word magnets and just write exactly. Take all of them off the fridge except for the words greenhouse slap. <laughs> what about you, Bridget? Any final thoughts? You want to put a bow on the uh, on the whole evening? Um, no, I have one bit of trivia that I guess I'll share in lieu of a conclusive final thought. But in speaking about the greenhouse scene, the greenhouse which is filled with orchids. All of those orchids cost fifteen thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-seven money. Like each of them individually, or the whole lot of orchids. The whole lot of them. Oh, okay. Which is still is still disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> What's well, because they require we, a lot of work. different words? Astounding, disgusting. <laughs> Damn. But yeah, that's my final thought. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, just to. For for me, I, I quite enjoyed it. I was on this movie's wavelength from the start, and even though it wasn't necessarily the full experience I was looking for in terms of having a a deliberate crime whodunit story, uh, I was pleasantly surprised with the direction that this took to tell that kind of story. And even though that was more on the back end of the movie, uh, I still quite enjoyed everything, even if I did feel it was a little abrupt in the end. But I. I quite enjoyed it and thought it was a, a really good movie. So that'll do it for this week's episode of Fine, I'll Watch It. Remember, you can find every episode of Fine, I'll Watch It every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Podbean, Stitcher, and Spotify. Remember, you can rate the podcast both in, app, in Spotify and in Apple Podcast. So let us know what you think of the show uh, by giving us a review. That would be greatly appreciated, and we appreciate all the listeners that we do have. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Broken Clock Pods. So let us know what you think of In the Heat of the Night, uh, what your favorite Sydney Poitier roles are. Uh, you can let us know on Facebook and Twitter at Broken Clock Pods. But once again, for Fine, I'll Watch It, my name is Adam. My name is Johnny. And I'm Bridget. And thanks so much for listening. 